Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. In this episode of Making Media, I sat down with Neil Schuster. Neil is a co-founder and partner of golf media business, No Laying Up. No Laying Up is one of my favorite media businesses, both for its content and how the small team behind it has grown the operation over the past decade. It began as a WhatsApp group talking about golf among friends. That became a Twitter account in 2013, a blog, and then now the famous, if you're into golf, podcast came shortly after. Neil and his four co-founders, known as Solly, DJ, Big Randy, and Brother Tron, have captured the mood of golf fans around the world, and they've brought fresh insights as well as conversations with leading players to listeners. As their audience grew, the side project became a full-time venture, and today, while you can still count the entire employee base on two hands, the business is legitimately one of the biggest and most influential media operations in golf. And a topic we've discussed many times on Making Media, they are executing the content to commerce playbook to a T. A community offering, a pro shop, and events are just some of the ways you can get more involved with No Laying Up if you enjoy their podcasts, original shows on YouTube, or their writing. Neil and I get into all of that and more in our discussion about how No Laying Up works. Now, for regular Making Media listeners, there is no debrief with Matt at the end of this episode. He welcomed the newest Colossus listener to the world last week. And quite frankly, he wouldn't have been able to take the mic from me in this conversation anyway. He'll be back with fresh perspective next week. If you're looking for more content after this episode, I highly recommend listening to Neil break down the PGA Tour in the Business Breakdowns episode we did with him last year. Now, without further ado, let's get to the conversation. Neil, welcome back to a Colossus podcast. Dom, it's great to be back. I enjoyed the breakdown we did, I guess, last year around this time. Yeah, I'm thinking at some stage in the future, we'll need to do one again because the landscape has shifted quite dramatically already in the nine, 10 months since we did that episode. At least I think a few of the predictions turned out to be true. Yes. With the lawsuits and stuff. So that's, I'm not right a lot. It was nice to be right on that, on the breakdown pod. Yeah, I'm thinking there might be a nice victory lap to come. We'll see. So this is going to be more about you and No Laying Up and the business behind it. And me as a particular fan of No Laying Up, I'm very excited for this one in particular. I want to start with just the NLU machine as I see it today. You guys start with a podcast, you've got a shop, YouTube content, a voracious community. How do they all fit together in your mind as a business? It's a work in progress, I think. If you go back to 2013, 2014, when things got started, it was never intended to be a business. And I think that's always worked to our advantage. That, and it's a four of us that founded it, and then five of us now that are partners, kind of a collective ownership of it, which I think also helped in the early days to get things started. The overwrought funnel analogy, something that you hear a lot of some marketing speak, but I would look at it as the top of the funnel for us is probably Twitter, the podcast, 
YouTube, and now the website, which we've reignited with our, with, you know, bringing Kevin Van Valkenburg from ESPN on board. We can talk a little bit about why we did that, but those would be kind of the top of the funnel. Those are where our biggest audiences are. And I think Twitter over other social platforms, because it's so conversational and golf, I think is a perfect sport for Twitter in that it's slow, really slow. And so you actually have time to add second screen commentary. And so that was, I think, a big growth engine for us early on and continues to be. The next step down in the funnel would be the other social channels and our email newsletter, which is pretty big at this point. I write the newsletter. I try to be very respectful of people's inboxes. It's twice a month. It's updates on our content, our events. It's kind of a roundup on all the things we're doing and then what we have in the pro shop. And I'd say Instagram, we've really worked hard on that strategy. But right now, and I think we're very comfortable with it, it kind of serves as a way to promote or highlight the content we're already making. A lot of the video stuff that we do, a lot of the podcasts that we do, they take a lot of time, prep, editing, all that stuff. And in today's world with so much content out there, it's easy to just put out something you worked really hard on. And then next week you're on to the next thing. And so Instagram is a great way for us to play the hits a little bit, or I guess you could say self-promote, which we're not that good at even now. And we do a little bit on TikTok, but some of it is, should we be doing more of that? Yeah, probably. But we're a small team and it's kind of evolved. And if you look at what our Instagram looked like two years ago compared to now, you almost always have to zoom out. The minute we all start getting critical of, we should be doing this, we should be doing that. It's like, well, go back to 2020, 2021. It's gotten a lot better and a lot more impactful, I think. I was going to say, just that Instagram strategy, people who aren't aware of your Twitter presence, the Twitter presence is much more capturing like things happening in the golf world, almost providing kind of analysis ahead of the pod in real time. And then so people can kind of follow that to get your thoughts immediately. Whereas Instagram, as you're saying, is kind of like highlighting things that you're already doing in terms of juxtaposing those two different strategies. Yes. And so our main Twitter handle, Solly, one of my partners, he runs that. And in the early days, we were all running it, but Twitter is such an opinionated platform. It was a good thing for us Okay, Sal is going to run this, and then we all have our own Twitter handles, and then that creates a bit of an ecosystem for commentary from everyone, which then feeds into the podcast and allows the conversation to transition platforms, I guess you could say. Whereas Instagram, I find is harder. It's much more like of a megaphone in a lot of ways. Like It's very difficult to keep up with the DMs and the stories and the posts, and so we find it to be a little exhausting, and you can really spin your wheels on that platform. At least that's what we found. We've developed a pretty good process for it. And I think it's definitely benefiting the business. I'd say like slightly farther down, the next part of the funnel would be the pro shop, which you could think of it as like the bottom of the funnel, but I don't. I see it as we're not an apparel company. Nobody's wearing our gear. We try to make stuff that we want to wear that's high quality. And in order to do that, we try to work with companies like Holderness and Born or Levelware or Footjoy. They're the pros at making gear. And we make some of our own stuff that's very time consuming. I see it as marketing that we make money on in a lot of ways. The reason someone's buying it is because they like our content or they like our community. And so it's been a very good piece of the business from a revenue sense. And it's kind of evolved as we've diversified things, but it's beneficial from a marketing standpoint as well. And then the bottom, I guess the center of the maze would be our event series, our Nest membership, and the message board. The message board is probably the center of the maze. If you really want to get involved in the conversation, you can get lost in the sauce there. And then I think sometimes people even fall out the bottom. They almost wash out of the message board. And we've got all these local clubs now, these roosts around the world. 
people meeting up playing golf in their local area and they all have their own discord servers now and whatsapp chats and for me it's like you could argue like oh man you, you should try to keep them on our platforms and it's like ah no i mean hopefully and my theory is if we have a positive impact on their experience with golf then they're going to associate us in a positive light so if they want to take that conversation offline that's totally fine with me you know where to find us so that's kind of the the machine if you want to say that's how we think about it and i think the social media stuff, the marketing stuff, the membership stuff turns, send those arrows back up with word of mouth. That's where it's like, Hey, what's that logo? You should come join our roost or Hey, come to our event. That's where the cycle repeats itself. It's really interesting listening to that because it's almost like from a, I don't know this for a fact, but from a monetization point, it's almost like a reverse funnel. I imagine you're actually monetizing the top of the funnel much more aggressively than you are the bottom of the funnel. You talked about kind of the bottom of the funnel actually being just getting people engaged with each other in the community and just like being kind of in person with people. And then obviously you have a subscription product through the Nest as well. Leads me to the next question of what is the mission for you guys? If that's the bottom of the funnel, which is kind of interesting from a financial perspective versus what are you trying to do when you guys come together for an offsite every year? Like what's the first or second slide in your presentation? Like what are we trying to do here as no laying up? You nailed it. We do a team offsite every year. I actually got everybody to come up to uh, New York in the dead of winter. The year before, we went out to see Randy in Denver. The year before that, we did one at Sea Island. Every year, we do it in January. And the first thing we do is we talk about our mission statement, which we created probably four or five years ago. We usually spend about an hour going through every word of it. It currently is to entertain and inform a community of avid golfers around the world. And we go over basically every word. Like, for instance, I think this year or last year, we flipped inform and entertain. So we put entertain first because we feel like that's probably where people are coming to us. If our content is not entertaining or informing somebody, then why are we doing it? And I think the second piece of that is we have some core values. One of them is try to lead with curiosity. Usually if we're excited about it, if we're curious in it, that's a good starting point. Now, does that mean we should do everything we're curious or excited about? No, but it almost creates this new list of like, okay, here's the ideas. And then you start to pull off of that list. And that's, I think, a good guiding principle for us because when it goes from hobby mode into business, it's kind of like have a camera, we'll travel. Where do you want me to go? We'll film whatever you want. And that can be a serious hamster wheel. And you start to realize like, just because you can doesn't mean you should. So starting to create these filters for how an idea gets from our offsite or our film room meetings into a pre-production plan into a trip, you kind of have to start to standardize it a little bit without killing the creativity. And I think that leading with the curiosity is really, really important. And then like, does it serve the audience? What we've learned is when we get a partner or a sponsor involved, and you learn this upfront early in the discussions, like you run into a lot of sponsors that just want to say like, well, no, we just want you to come play on our pro-am. Do this very easy to understand thing where you make us look cool. And it's like, well, nobody wants to watch that. And we could do a lot more of that stuff. What I think is more valuable is, no, if you let us do this idea, the audience is going to love it. You're going to get a lot more attention. And more importantly, not just views, you're going to get a lot more engagement. You're going to get people saying like, I really enjoyed that. Take our week in the life video, for instance, or some of the film room stuff we do. I think there's a lot that we could do to appeal to a larger audience, we could probably churn out a lot more factory setting content. And I think we actively choose not to because 
I think it's more sustainable to do what we want to do. We're not going to burn out. Plus, the core audience will appreciate the thought, the quality, the fact that there is a filter. Let me put it that way. Because we have a lot of bad ideas too. And that's the thing. The fact that it's a group of us, you kind of have to sell the group on it first. And that can be a high bar to cross. Well, what does that system look like from idea to execution? Who is it going through? Or is that different for the different mediums you've got going? It's varied over the years. I think at this point, I guess our business is a little bit of an experiment in socialist capitalism a little bit. There's no CEO, but we all kind of have a lane that we're in. So I'm kind of the head of business operations. You know, I'm on the pod a couple of times a month in video content. You know, Solly's the host of the podcast, but he's also helping me with business stuff. I would say DJ and my brother Tron are much more the heads of content in a way. They like to chase stories. They kind of see things, I think, before we do. They'll bring ideas to us. And when they're excited, usually I'm excited. We rarely disagree vehemently on something. And usually, if somebody's very passionate about something, for instance, my brother just left. He's on a trip over to Scotland and got a big project over the next seven to 10 days that he's really passionate about. And it was like, okay, you want to do this idea? Then you have to do X, Y, and Z. You got to be the project manager on it. You got to make sure that this is the budget we've got for it. This is how you got to work in a potential partner. But if that's what you want to do, take ownership of it and go do it. And I think there's a lot of value in, hey, come to the group, pitch your idea and come correct with that pitch so that it doesn't become a burden for the rest of the team. And then, yeah, go do it. And then we're all here to support you. And sometimes that's one person. Sometimes it's three people, which is kind of how one of our series strapped came about. Randy and DJ had an idea. They approached me with it. The three of us started to talk it through and plan it out. Tron and Solly were like, hey, that sounds great. We'll get involved, You know, almost play the villains. And then it kind of evolves from there over time. And then the audience receives it. They have feedback. You take what you like, you leave what you don't, and you go on to season two. That process is very much, you better be able to sell it to your colleagues, to your partners first. Then the next step is kind of like, does this serve the audience? Or how can we tweak it to make sure that it's informing or entertaining? And the next step is, is there a business opportunity here? Not everything has to have a business opportunity. I would say, I mean, honestly, the majority of our content starts out without one. And then it becomes popular. And then we're able to get the right partner involved where it doesn't hinder the content in any way. Or we don't. Like Strapped, we've never had a sponsor for Strapped. Week in the Life is still unsponsored. So those are series that we feel like fit the mission and we're going to overinvest in, even if we don't have a sponsor. You mentioned the piece of, is this right for our audience? And then you said in the mission statement that the audience is avid golfers. I imagine the word avid causes some disagreement at various times because that's very specifically a type of golfer. You could have just said golfers. You could say the casual golfer. There are many different forms of golfer out there. Was it always that you honed in on avid golfer or did that come to be as an evolution of the product that you were putting out there into the world that you're honing in on this specific person? As I've learned from media, constraints are really helpful. And like that is probably a really helpful constraint for you guys to think about when you're producing any form of content. 1000%. That word is very intentional. And I think you'll see it. There's a lot of, I don't want to call it competition, but there's a lot of people in golf media right now doing similar content, same platform, same medium as us. And in some ways it helps to say like, Hey, we're not going to win over there. And that's totally fine. I think a criticism I'd have, not just for 
golf media, but for just media in general, is I think way too many publications and operations treat an audience like they're stupid. They spread themselves too thin. They say yes to too much stuff. You're absolutely right. The word avid really helps us zero in on like, we consider ourselves avid golfers. That word specifically helps us focus things. And I think it helps streamline the funnel thing we were talking about. You don't have to be an avid golfer. I think that our content is appealing to, some of it is appealing to a wider audience. At the same time, I think golf is a very interesting market or niche, whatever you want to call it, where golf's not huge. But once you're in, I mean, it's addicting. And you're also in for life. So there's a wide age gap. We might not catch the young high school, college guy that's just getting started, but as he gets older and we're getting older, I think we're aging a little bit with our audience. It's like there is a lifelong avid golfer that you have to treat with respect. You can't do both sometimes. We're not always going to appeal to the avid golfer specifically, but I think that that is going to be prioritized if there's a choice to be made. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I really want to work through this funnel with you now, kind of in detail, starting with the podcast, because I think that is the founding piece of No Laying Up, or maybe it started with a WhatsApp group, but it turned into the podcast that kind of everyone knows today. And you have a few different podcasts, but kind of like if we zero in on the No Laying Up podcast, the main one, it feels to me as a listener that there's kind of been a gradual evolution from mainly interviews with professional golfers and other personalities in the golf world to kind of more of you as the No Laying Up team being on there, breaking down either what's happening in the world or breaking down specific events in your weekly show with drop-in interviews now and again. How much of that is conscious and how much of that is just you exhausting the list of people in the golf world that you can talk to because now you're on episode 600 and whatever it is when there probably aren't that many people that you haven't had on the show? I think it's a little bit of both. I'd say a lot of our success, you can chalk up to luck and timing. I think golf from a media standpoint, is always three years behind, maybe more. So we got in early on the Twitter conversation. And then about a year into things, it was like, hey, there's no golf podcast. We should start one. And that was just really good timing. Golf is also unique in that for the top guys, there's a team. There's the agents and the handlers, the umbrella guy and the swing coach and the strength coach. But for most of the guys with a tour card, and this was very true, eight years ago when we were starting the pod, these guys are small business owners in a lot of ways. And they're on the road. It's truly a tour. They're going from city to city. They're in hotel rooms. They're on their phone all the time. They're bored. They're probably lonely. They're a lot easier to get in touch with than other athletes, say NBA players that have a whole PR organization surrounding them. MLB, like the team creates almost a shelter for them. Two things helped us a lot. One, from the start, it wasn't a business. It was a hobby. We were just trying to have fun. And I think people can sense that. So it's not like we weren't trying to capitalize on anybody or any relationships. And Solly specifically did a really good job of developing some of those relationships. And all of us, I remember the match play was on site out at Harding Park when I lived in San Francisco. And you go out and you just wear an NLU shirt, wander around, a couple of guys are on the practice screen. Hey, nice shirt. Same thing. We all went to Hilton Head. Same thing. Oh yeah, man, I follow you guys on Twitter. Then that turns into an opportunity to say, hey, would you like to come on our podcast? And back then, in that medium, I think a lot of these guys were very enthusiastic about, this is great. This is fun. I can share my thoughts. And the other thing with golfers is probably grown up in a setting where they're spending four or five hours. They're all doing pro-ams with CEOs. They know how to communicate. There's almost like a sense of like, I want to present myself well. And I think that's a good thing for a podcast. So 
yes, you're right. Then all of a sudden podcast starts to gain some traction. It gets very popular. The hardest part with the interview pods for not only solid, but all of us with our other pod, the trap draw. And those guys learn this quick too, is guests create uncontrollable variables, scheduling a lot of, Hey, yeah, I'd love to come on the pod ghosting. And then all of a sudden they were supposed to come on next Tuesday. And now we don't have an episode. Some of it was just a bit of a survival thing of, well, we can control our own destiny if we're on the pod. And then another piece of it was once we all started to leave our jobs and go full time, now there's more time. So early on, it was like, it's harder to get together for a podcast because we all have real jobs. Well, now this is our job. Naturally evolved into Sunday nights became kind of the recap podcast. And I would say over the last three years, early on, the interview pods drove the downloads and they were good for us. They got us a lot of attention. You get a big name like Rory or Spieth or JT on the pod. And that does a lot for the brand and it adds a ton of credibility. Now the recap pods drive downloads in a big way. And the interview ones still do really well, but we've started doing LPGA pods this year. Even those, there's a lot of psychology involved in podcasting too. And I look at this from how I listen to podcasts. It's very hard for me to try out new pods. So once you have your like rotation, you're going there first when I'm going to go for a run. I got to drive or whatever. And it's like, ah, oh man, I've you go through those and you're like, well, it's almost like a big investment of like, do I really want to try this one out? And I think there's something habitual to it. And there's something comforting to like a group of familiar voices where you're like, oh, good. Yes. I want to just dig in on this. And so I think people have been drawn long-term as more podcasts pop up. It's almost like a safe haven. Well, I know what I'm going to get here. And I think with our recap pods, the ability to have that consistency where the interviews can be hit or miss. It's funny. Like some people you think are going to be not good, turn out to be the best interviews and you really just can't predict it. Whereas on the recap stuff, we have control over the segments we do. We put a lot of work into the podcast agenda throughout the week, updating what we're going to talk about on the Sunday night show. We have the luxury as a group of cycling in. Last week, I was on the Heritage one. This coming week, I won't be on the pod. And I think that's important as well because it keeps us fresh where you don't want to become, I don't know, burned out would be the word. And we all kind of have a different level of what is your burnout line? And I think we've all started to realize what that level is. And we try to support each other and like, hey, personally, with all the stuff I'm doing behind the scenes, I'm good for two a month. Or if I know I got to be on all four live shows for the Masters, I don't really want to be on for the Players' Championship. I'm going to need to holster some cakes <laughs> and fill up the strategic reserves for a little while. <laughs> Hopefully that answers your question. It does. And you're kind enough to share with me a Google Doc ahead of one of your weekly recap shows. And it's amazing how detailed that is. When I listen to it, it just feels like a conversation amongst friends, which it is. But it's very like well thought through. And I think this gets to kind of some of the magic of really good podcasters of creating characters and storylines that carry through weeks, months, years. And especially with bits, I think you guys do a wonderful job of like, you know, when you tune into No Laying Up, what each of you is probably thinking on a topic because you've cultivated that character through time. And then you've brought other characters into the fray, like the cat for Tiger or the buoy for Ram, although I'd contend that's the boy. Buoy probably works better for Ram. Or the butcher. <laughs> yeah, or the butcher. Either way, it's like all of this stuff, kind of these inside jokes that as a listener, it just cultivates more loyalty. Like, And how conscious of that stuff were you as you were going through? Or was it just a case of, hey, we're just friends talking about this stuff as we would if we were down the pub or whatever, but actually 
over time, this is really resonating with people and we kind of need to lean into these characters so people could know what to expect when they tune in. Well, I think it's crucial. It's a couple of things. Like we try to cover golf from a fan's perspective and the whole operation started as an answer to our own problem back in 2013. Nobody's talking about golf the way we talk about it. Well, hey, we should start a golf blog. Hey, same thing with the podcast. Why don't we just record this conversation we're having at the Hibachi Steakhouse in Hilton Head? Yeah, let's go home and do it right now. You don't want to stray too far from the original stuff. Now, it's been a process. I think about three years ago, I think 2020, I would credit Randy with this. Communication is key. I would liken our operation more to like a band than I would to like a media company. You don't want the band to break up. And so communication is something I focus on, just internal communication. It's very easy to say like, oh, we're all talking, we're meeting once a week. But in group settings, a lot of times people don't say what they think. And I think the pod agenda got a lot more detailed and robust. Randy brought up like, hey, I really struggle when it just says on that agenda, like Rom, Spieth, Fowler, like my brother, he can go down the leaderboard all you want. But like, and I get this too. It's like, I'm not like a talking head on golf channel. Like I can't just fire off a ROM take if I don't have one. So it started to become like, well, let's put some work into creating some segments or setting each other up with questions. And so it's on me, if I'm on the pod to go in and say to Sally and to Tron, if they're on with me, guys, I want you to ask me about this. You put it in the agenda, telegraph it to them. I'm open, throw me the ball. And Randy said it best. He's like, the more you can dictate a sandbox for me to play in, it's almost counterintuitive, but the more I can riff, the more that I can get into a rhythm, I know where you're going next and I can be ready with something that is additive to the conversation. And so that's where some of the segments, and I think just generally we joke around like, you know, at the core of our business model, the whole thing is one big inside joke. Yeah. <laughs> Even yesterday, New York Post, life resume stuff, sourced Tron Carter, <laughs> my brother. And so my wife's family, her uncles and cousins out in New Jersey, big New York Post readers. They're like, hey, I saw no laying up in the New York Post. You know, it's about Patrick Reed's wife doxing herself with her burner account, whatever. Being found out. So stupid. Such a deep years running inside joke. My brother has been performing on Twitter. But their first question is, well, why is your brother's last name Carter? Why isn't it <laughs> Schuster? And I'm like, ah, well, you know, that's going to be tough <laughs> to explain. A long time, yeah. That makes me laugh. And I think that the more that we're laughing and the more that we're enjoying ourselves, there's a osmosis to that with the audience. And golf's been pretty serious the last year and a half. And so it's very polarizing with the live golf stuff and the PGA Tour. But another thing that Randy and, and Solly talk about a lot is like, we're not experts on golf and especially as things started to like grow, but we can be experts on how you feel. So it's like, if you feel a certain way, you should say it. And then if that changes, you should explain why it changed. People accuse us of like, oh, you guys are paid by the PGA Tour. It's like, I mean, we're not, period. And also like, you must be new here because we made a career making fun of them. This is how I feel about it. I don't think that means we can't be friends. And even with some of our sponsors, like I would say, working with Titleist and FootJoy after working with Callaway for a long time, and we made that switch this year. We are on different sides of the golf ball argument, rolling back the ball, golf so self-serious, but we disagree on that. And that's a huge business thing for Titleist, but we over-communicated early on when we were discussing working with them of like, 
we feel this way and we are open to hearing why we shouldn't and changing the opinion, but we cannot be censored on stuff like that. They've held up their end of the deal with that. And I think, you know, in return, we try to have on our podcast a nuanced discussion about it to the point where sometimes it's like it can get a little in the weeds. And that's where the avid golfer thing comes in. Like, if I'm going to talk about this topic, I really want to dig in on it. If I'm going to talk about the world golf rankings, I'm going to go read about it. And I'm going to talk about the nitty gritty of this kind of boring thing. And so I guess the goal is like, you got to have a balance where you want to have fun. We got the inside jokes, the layers on layers on layers. But at the same time, it's like, I take the topic seriously as well. I try not to take myself seriously, but I do try to take the subject matter seriously. And I think you can have it both ways. It's just trying to find that balance is kind of a constant work in progress. Yeah. And back to the entertain and inform with both pieces. And you have to have a take. Your job is out there to say something. And then obviously, if it turns out you're wrong, then you can say sorry for that. And that's fine. A lot of people that are critical of us, I can tell when people just don't listen to the pot. There's a lot of nuance in this. Like I've settled on this opinion that you're picking up on Twitter, but like I've worked you through my Socratic method. And sometimes it's tough with podcasting or videos. So the problem is we've got, yeah, like 660 podcasts. I've gone in depth about the OWGR on podcast number 602, let's say. Now we're on 660. That doesn't benefit the audience if I regurgitate that over and over. But it's also like this person is new to the argument, new to the podcast, first time listening. It's tough to balance that. We also get that on the entertaining side. A lot of people say like, I can't keep up with your inside jokes. And some of it to me is like, well, listen, man, I'm not going to do the work for you. No one's forcing you to listen to it. I think there's a lot of value. And I, as a consumer of media, appreciate when it's like, everything isn't just dumbed down and easy to understand. I kind of want to go on the scavenger hunt for like, why do they keep bringing up this butcher thing? What is this lingering versus loitering argument? It's like, you can find the answers. You're going to have to work a little bit for it. And I think that the audience that I guess I want to have, it's almost like an investment they're making, which I think long-term is more sustainable. It's a multi-year-long conversation. And the payoff for that stuff is so much greater. When you finally crack that nut, like, oh, that's what the butcher means. Now I feel like I'm in and part of the community. Yeah, you feel like you're part of the squad. That's the whole point. And then like, oh, by the way, like there's a bunch of other people on this message board. You can get deeper and deeper. And I think offering that avenue has been really fun. Like I really enjoy that and really beneficial to us as an operation. So then the main No Laying Up podcast, and then you also have a few other podcasts, The Trap Draw being kind of your secondary podcast, for slightly different stuff and then downrange. How do you think about the other podcasts as complementary or completely different to the main show? And whether in the past you've thought about growing the podcasts more generally in terms of bringing other people in or just doing more of your own stuff and just strategic level podcast thoughts? Yeah, the trap draw is awesome. I love it. For listeners, the trap draw is it's a golf podcast that does not talk about golf. And I think it works with golf because when you're on a golf course and you're having a good round with a group of people, nobody really wants a hole by hole analysis of how you played or how bad you played. You really end up talking about life, you talk about family, business, whatever. The best part about golf is that you're out there with somebody for four, hopefully four hours, maybe five. And you can kind of get to know people. And I think the trap draw is kind of our embodiment of that. We are all very interested. Like if you look at our Slack channel, we have a million channels, mostly talking about things that have nothing to do with golf. I think we all come from a wide range of backgrounds. So 
it's kind of an outlet for us to discuss things with interesting people or discuss going deep on documentaries we like or books or movies or talk about the NFL. There's no rule that we can't do that. Now, what's important is that back to Randy's comment about like, there needs to be a sandbox for that. Because I've had people say like, oh, you guys should branch out into tennis or you should go into other sports. It's like, no, we need to stay focused. If you're going to find us, it's because you're into golf. But most golfers have a lot of other interest in golf. And I think there's a big value in being able to discuss that stuff. And it's fulfilling for us. And again, it kind of follows the curiosity thing we were talking about earlier of like, hey, we're curious and excited about this topic. I think other people will. Like, We love talking about airports, our favorite one. We travel a lot. And I think people can relate to that. And that's always a fun annual trap draw episode that we do. And then the best part about it is that then translates down into the community, into the message board. So if you go onto our message board, which is refuge.nolangup.com, and if you're not a member, you can see a few of the threads. One of my favorites is the thread title is new homeowner. What should I know? And it's people like, hey, I'm redoing my closet. Check out my DIY project. I just bought a washer and dryer. What refrigerator do you recommend? My home just got flooded. What should I do? Literally 7,000 posts of really useful stuff. Or you could go over to the NFL thread, or you could go to, there's a book club. There's a movie club where people are meeting up every two weeks to discuss books and movies. And personally, similar to podcasts, I'm terrified of picking a book for myself. So I'm always trying to look for like a recommendation. And it's nice to know that okay, here's this thing where I know like all these people have one thing in common, but they all have different interests and you can kind of find these different niches within the niche. And with how big the internet is and how overwhelming it can be to go like search on Google for like, what book should I read? That's usually my first stop is like, I'm just going to go search the message board and see if there's an answer to my question. I almost feel like it's a not a trusted source, but like it's going to provide either some entertainment or a good answer. And I'm probably going to know something about the person that's recommending it. Yeah. Just like-minded people kind of just shows again, the internet is both so big and so small. It's like why you would join a sports club as a sports fan in your local community, because you're trying to get to know people with a common interest. And then you end up, as you say, inevitably discussing all sorts of other things. A podcast can kind of foster that loyalty and that like-mindedness and community around it. And then you can harness that for very other different benefits and topics and stuff. Very, very cool. Your team is small and you're kind of like a band. One of the very early hires was DJ. It feels to me like looking back that that was a really shrewd move. And I don't know how it came about, but he is kind of your video expert. And it feels like you guys are swimming with ideas. And he just does a wonderful job of executing those, particularly across video, but now kind of branching out into other formats as well. What was the original insight there with bringing DJ on and thinking about YouTube and video as a complement to the podcast? DJ, our resident creative, he is extremely talented and in a lot of ways developed a friendship with him first. He worked for the PGA Tour. Before that, he was working for Golf Week, but very eclectic interest music. So we all relate on stuff outside of golf, but he was an early supporter of us. When the PGA Tour hated us, he was kind of in the room being like, no, honestly, this is what we should be doing. And I think he kind of got sick of hearing no to good ideas and wanted to branch out on his own. And it was perfect timing for us. Solly was going to make a full-time go at things. So we brought him on kind of as a consultant and to help with, hey, we want to get into video stuff, but we don't know what we're doing. I would argue DJ didn't really know what he was doing. 
I think one of his best skills or attributes, and we all share this a little bit, is like he's a good self-teacher. He's going to learn it. And I think we've all kind of learned on the job in some way, but that was a really good way to get the video stuff. It just kind of opened up a whole new element of our business. And it was a lot easier early on from a business standpoint to sell sponsors on like a multimedia package. You're going to get podcasts and videos and they're going to support each other. And for me, when I'm creating business proposals for people, like that's a dynamic offering instead of like, Hey, do a 60 second podcast read. That's valuable too, but it's nice to be able to put the two together. DJ is great at working both on the creative side, but also understanding like, Hey, this is a business and we can't follow every idea. Again, a lot of luck, but I think anybody that we've brought on board One, we've developed a relationship with them through whether the message board or DJ like on Twitter. And then two, it's like they have a specific set of skills and it's like, okay, let's test things out. And then if it's going well, it's just like, let's just keep doing it. You like what you're doing? Cool. And then that kind of morphs into trying to get the team into the right, like, hey, we really need somebody to run Instagram. Ben, we need you to to work on this and Ben also wants to develop his chops as a video editor. Okay, well, we're going to have you run film room as well. So every year, the job descriptions are a little fluid. That can be difficult. I'm not asking anyone to do anything that I'm not doing. Everyone's got to chip in. Yeah. Get your hands dirty, basically, and learn on the job. From your video stuff, you've created some like amazing original content, whether it's Torah Source or Strapped, which is the series that you do with Randy. What have you learned about storytelling just in general? And I would say watching your YouTube stuff is compounding in action. Because if you go back to kind of your original YouTube stuff, I would say the production value kindly was low budget, but interesting because you're following a group of friends playing in nice places. And now the production value is super high. And clearly, like you're really thinking through the storylines and exactly like what are we going to say in this episode and across this series? I would love your thoughts on just kind of storytelling in general as someone who maybe wasn't schooled in media as a young person. One of the beauties of the internet and YouTube and current media landscape is that it democratized video. Like it doesn't have to be a movie production. The story and the authenticity matters more than anything else. Yeah, we started filming things on our cell phones, but it was good. It was entertaining. And then I think every year we've done a really good job of just getting a little better. We got a nicer camera, figured out how to plan the trips better. And then those slow incremental things compound into like, yeah, it looks pretty professional now. Now, if you talk to like a trained eye, you'd still say like, oh, we're probably 80% of the way there. That last 20% is going to cost you millions. But like nobody's really asking for it. That's the interesting thing is like people, as long as it's good, people are cool with it. And I think they appreciate that you're making the effort to make it a little bit better as well. I think we probably overproduce a lot of what we do compared to other YouTube golf operations. And you could argue like we shouldn't, but we take pride in the work and it leads to us probably putting out less than we could. But it also, I think, puts a governor on us not putting out bad stuff and not burning ourselves out. So I think there's a kind of ingrained sense of like continuous improvement with us that I'm really proud of. And we've implemented some things like Cody brought this over from you know his time in the army. After every big trip, we do a AAR, an after action report, where we talk about like what went well, what didn't. And that's been a really good venue for people to say, like, 
hey, this is really wearing me out on these trips, or I really like when we do it this way, or when we assign somebody this on each day. And it leads to like better collaboration and I think better content in the end. Can you bring us inside on maybe that discussion? The last season you went to Scandinavia for a couple of week trip, and I would encourage everyone to go and watch it. When you came back from that, what were some of the big items that you said, like, we really want to lean into this or actually this isn't doing it for us and we want to try to change tack? Honestly, Scandinavia trip was great in that there wasn't a ton of like, this is bad. But one thing we came away with was we're not going to do a tourist sauce, our big bucket list, massive trip that we do every year. We're going to bump that to January for several reasons. But a big reason was getting ahead on the calendar. It's a Ryder Cup year. It's a Solheim Cup year. We have limited resources that ties up the team for three, four months in the edit bay. Understanding how these trips kind of suck the resources up, getting better at identifying that a lot earlier. I think a lot of my job is I'm just looking for landmines, always looking for landmines. Are we ahead of this sponsor project? Is this person going to be high maintenance? Is somebody going to burn out? It's very easy to kick things down the road when it's not due until August. But if you don't get ahead of it three, four months with the planning, it can really wear the team out and nobody wants to deal with it. And it's a lot easier to deal with it up front. So I am always looking for that. And I think the keys to those AARs are you have to take notes. We do a weekly call and I'm militant about notes. Maybe it's my time at Google, but I used to roll my eyes with the note-taking stuff at Google. But it's like, no, there's a record of everything. And it's just a massive Google Doc, but you can control find keywords in it. And you have to keep it very simple. It's like everybody come with something you like and something you don't like. And everybody has to bring something up. And usually the first two or three people that go, it's like, there's an echo. Like, I agree with that. And so then you're like, oh, okay, well, everybody's feeling this way about... I think the big one of the big ones on Scandinavia trip is like, we need somebody to figure out what we're going to eat every day. Who is planning breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Who's the day producer? And it seems very simple and stupid, but like people get hangry. The year before it was like, we got to limit the 36 whole days. If we have a 36 whole day, we need a day off the day after because it burns people out. You don't want to get chippy. It comes through on camera. People are getting grumpy. They're throwing their clubs. <laughs> that stuff comes from being tired. It doesn't come from bad play. And you start to discuss this as a group and you start to identify like, all right, well, that's very easy to avoid. And it's amazing how like simple little stuff goes a long way. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. Your YouTube strategy is interesting to me because a lot of people use YouTube, particularly podcasters, as kind of a dumping ground for discoverability. Let's just put everything on there and hope that maybe something catches on fire and then people will be attracted to our RSS feed or whatever it might be or our brand. But you guys seem very intentional about the type of stuff you want on there. And you've talked about quality already. And one question I've always wondered is why you don't put your podcast onto YouTube, because it seems like you do take the video. I often see clips of it on Twitter or Instagram, but you don't have the full conversations other than the live shows that you've started to do more of you stream through YouTube. So like, what's the thinking behind that decision? So it's something we've discussed a lot. It's a few things. One, it's getting a lot easier to do that with new platforms. Like we use a platform called StreamYard, which has really, really helped us do live podcasting and video stuff. I think it's the edit resources. Believe it or not, it's not as easy as just if we're going to go live, like, yeah, fire it up. Cody is on the back end, like spending a couple hours after the pod. It's always like, oh, just hire somebody for that. Well, you know, someone's got to manage that person. And I am a big believer in just 
incremental improvement, incremental growth. So we went from no live shows to let's do live shows for majors last year to, you know what? We can handle 40 of them. Let's do the elevated events and the majors. And I think next year, maybe that'll expand even farther. But I think there's something valuable too with YouTube of like, yeah, we could start a separate channel for the No Laying Up podcast. Again, that takes somebody to manage that channel all day long. And the beauty of our business, a lot of people that are just YouTubers focus on YouTube. Well, you know, we're working on this Nest membership stuff. We're planning events. We've got the podcast. We've got the video projects that we spend a lot of time editing and creating all in-house. So some of it's not what, it's when is more the question. And I'm a big believer in like, hey, we'll get there. I'm cool with people criticizing us for moving too slow. One thing that I really value is that we have complete control over our business. We don't have investors. We don't make money off ads on YouTube. People are always like, I can't believe these guys only have so many views or whatever. It's like, well, it doesn't really matter to us from a business standpoint. Like, We want to get more followers, but not at the expense of selling out or creating something that we don't think is good. I think there's a value that the Warren Buffett quote or Munger, nobody wants to get rich slowly. And I actually have that quote on my wall. I think about it all the time. I think you can apply it to business, investing. You don't have to just go super fast. And that can be the worst thing you can do because you can get so sucked in on these flavor of the week things. I think YouTube's coming out with a podcasting tab or platform. I'm monitoring it. That could be a really good thing for us. The podcast would be in a separate tab over here or YouTube shorts. We're experimenting with them. But if I'm going to ask Ben, some of our other editors to start making YouTube shorts, that means that he can't do as much with film room. There's a negative associated with all that. And it's not as simple as like, we'll just hire somebody else. For us, the downside of not having investors is there's no safety net. So you got to just be very deliberate about what you do. And I think there's a lot of value in testing it in a controlled way of like, hey, we're going to do 40 of these. Those went really well. We should do more. Is everybody good with that? Is anybody burned out? What's the negative? What's the positive? So it's just about being deliberate, I think is the word. Where do you think that comes from, that business sense? Because like a lot of people, if you see opportunities to grow, they're like, let's fire people at it and let's just do it. And then, as you say, it's easy to get burned. But kind of, is there something either in your business history or something that you've seen that like really struck a chord and said, actually, I want to grow this slowly. I want to make sure like we're very deliberate about everything we do. We've got people in the right places. So to ownership of everything we do, we will get there, but it's probably not going to be at maybe other people's pace. I mean, it's simple as we fear. I'm always looking around like, when's the music going to stop? I love, love what I do. So I've always wanted to run a business since I was in college. I think I walked into my first internship in a baggy suit. I want to run my own business. Oh, this guy's an idiot. So it's a combination of, there's a very inherent understanding of this could all end. We could F it up by over-investing in the wrong thing. I think it's almost crazy. Like the last five years up until, I guess, the last six months, it was like, everyone's raising money. Everyone's just going ham. You know what the other thing is? There is scar tissue from, I started my career as a sales rep in two startups in San Francisco. And I watched one of them go out of business on a Monday afternoon because they couldn't hit payroll and they raised too much money and they couldn't hit the numbers the investors needed them to hit. And another one that just couldn't make it through the exit velocity. Product just didn't catch up to the vision of the founder. And for a million reasons, it turned into a cockroach. 
I just found it to be just a waste in a lot of ways. And I place a lot of value on a lot of stuff is not complicated. Just make more than you spent and be conservative in your forecasting. When I was at Google, building ad campaigns and working with new partners, I loved learning about one day I'm working with legal and general insurance. And the next day I'm working with a surfboard company and just getting an inside look at how do you make money? How does this business work? This one doesn't seem like it's sustainable. This one does, right? And that's really cool. Like what a cool business. There's a lot of pride in like, this is a well-run, functioning, sustainable business. And I place a lot of value on like when I work with partners, just competence. It's like, oh, you can get stuff done. You did what you said you were going to do. You over-delivered on that. And I think that's just a habit that I think is really valuable. And I would rather run a business that way there's a security in that, then with the risk of missing out on some big pop, if that makes sense. You could argue like, oh, you got to get it while you can. Well, I would say that's true if it's somebody else's money. But when it's your own money, it's like, hey, you should be smart about this. And like, my motivation is like, I don't want to exit. There's no 10x thing. If I'm doing what I'm doing in five years, and we're making a little more money, maybe I won't feel that way in five years. But right now, I'd love to keep doing exactly what I'm doing and add a little bit more here and chase this idea and start this division of the business. And so it's fear and it's just a desire to do things the right way. I get a lot of fulfillment out of that. Yeah, I love that. As we kind of work through the funnel that you spoke about initially, and this kind of speaks a little bit to what you've been talking about in terms of kind of diversifying the risk, I guess, of the business is the Nest, which is your subscription product and the message board and the community, which is kind of like everything the epicenter of no laying up, if you like. When we first talked, this is really interesting. You said to me, you've got to start a community. Well, the community for us has been really, really important. Why is that? Why would you say that? And like, how has the subscription product around it grown? Many questions in there, but take your pick at which one you want to answer first, then we can kind of work through it. The membership is kind of a, I make the analogy of like, you take care of your best customers. That's our core audience. And it's a great feedback loop for us. There's a lot of threads in there of them criticizing us, offering us feedback. I want more of this. You take what works for you. They don't have the whole story on why we do things the way we do it. But like, I promise you, I read it all or most of it. It's like, okay, well, can't do it that way. Or yeah, you don't really get how this works. But honestly, you start seeing the same thing pop up. It's a great way to work towards a better product. Taking care of your best customers is really important. Just on that, tactically, like how did you build the community? Because from my small forays into community building, I've realized that it's really hard to kind of think about it like a fire. You have to constantly make sure that the fire is lit. It's not going to rain. If it's going to rain, you've got to cover over it. You keep adding wood to the fire because as soon as you leave the fire for half an hour, it just dies. You really need to nurture this thing, particularly in the early days. How did you do that? What was even kind of the infrastructure you built around it? How tactical were you? Well, it grew out of the message board. And the message board was Randy's idea. He's a big Reds and Miami University hawk talk. It was similar to the pot. Hey, there's no, like, yeah, there's some golf message boards, but like, we should just start one and talk about whatever. It kind of blew up. And it was like, okay, well, we should start a membership because we wanted to start doing more events. And the issue was we had no way of filtering, like, who should get priority for the events because you only have so many spots. And so, like, that was a big driver of it. And like, oh, well, we could put together a little package where you get a discount in the pro shop, you get some exclusive content. You know, there's a lot of memberships out there. What we learned early on is people, they give you 90 bucks a year, they think they're a shareholder. 
a lot of feedback on, you should do it this way. You should do it that way. And I think after year one, a goal for me with the membership, because I'm in charge of that part of the biz. Okay. Let's simplify this. 80% of our like headaches were coming from this membership, a very small one or 2% of our audience. And similar to like the revenue, it's like, this isn't worth it. But I was like, we're not going to scrap it, but let's simplify things. One of the best things we did was put the message board behind the paywall. Turns out letting anybody and everybody come talk about politics or whatever they want on a message board with your logo on it is not a great idea. So that simplified things. It probably slowed the growth down. But again, I think that's a good thing. And then from there, we broke it all down. And my goal in year two was let's over deliver on what we are offering. Let's nail it. And in that year, and I think we did a really good job. And then the following year, let's slowly start to grow it up. And so in that time, I stopped promoting the Nest. We don't promote it much. Our churn rate for Nest membership is under 1.5% over four years. And I think it's because if you find the Nest, even the signup flow sucks. It's tons of friction, which we're redesigning now. You really want to be in it. And it means you know what you're getting into. Instead of us running a bunch of Instagram ads or like pimping it on the podcast every episode, you're going to attract people that think they're getting one thing and then they're disappointed. So letting it naturally evolve, letting the community dictate like, hey, this is your membership. The goal of this is not to be and play golf. It's to meet other people, like-minded people and play golf with them. So kind of letting the community grow it organically a little bit was a big factor. And then that's put us in a position now to layer in like, okay, we brought KVV on board. Well, there's a lot of value he can add. He's a very active Nest member, has been for three years, and he kind of understands what the audience is looking for. And I think there's ways, what I really like about the fact that we haven't promoted it and it's still grown at a very good rate and is very sustainable is that we can always turn on that faucet. You know, I guess the risk is there's some other golf operations that have started memberships. Well, listen, I think we have a head start and we can always kind of pour gas on the fire. I've always felt that way too about like, we've never done a lot of paid advertising. And I think when Apple changed their tracking stuff, that kneecapped a lot of small internet businesses, but we were never relying on that. And so it's like, okay, let's let the dust settle. If we ever need to, we can turn that on. It leaves some like ammo and for you if you absolutely have to have it. I'm a big believer in not becoming too reliant on one revenue stream or one part of the business, even if that hinders the growth of focusing all on sponsorship. Because we focus a lot on merch and membership, we probably hinder some of the growth on the sponsor side. I think that's healthy. Uh, it's funny because I was <laughs> going to bring up your Nest membership workflow as being something that's not particularly easy to navigate, but you explaining it makes perfect sense. No, it sucks. I'm well aware of it and I get feedback on it all the time. And again, it's like, hey, listen, I know it's a problem. We're deep in the weeds on redesigning some things right now. Web development, that stuff takes a lot of time. We finally have a, a Nest member who is an awesome web developer. He's helping us out as a freelancer and he's doing a great job, but it takes like a couple months to get him up to speed. And first order of business was like, hey, we need to dust off the website for KVV. It was focus on that first. Okay. At the same time, it's like, listen, it sucks, but it works. People are signing up every day and they're the right people. They're the people that are like, in some ways, I think it's almost endearing of like, yeah, man, like no, I agree. <laughs> it's here if you want it. I'm not over promising anything. The sign-up flow is kind of what you're getting. It's a choose-your-own-adventure situation. You got to invest in like the value. And I think a priority for me this year is making that investment easier on people. Yes, that is something we should definitely do and we are doing. 
I'm going to look out for the Easter eggs. I hope that you keep it somewhat difficult or there are a few questions in there that throw people off. It doesn't become too straightforward. We've talked about KVV a few times already and you announced earlier this year that he was a senior sports writer at ESPN for many years, I believe. And um, he joined you in your operation earlier this year. That felt like a really big moment for me thinking about your business is kind of like, oh, these guys, you know, an inside joke with no laying up is that you were kind of like referenced the kid and now you've grown up and you're no longer the kid. It almost felt kid like they're laying, yeah, the kid is dead. Well, he's not dead. We had to send the elevator back down. Kids aren't married. It's a fact of life. So I got married. Uh, yeah. But it always feels like no laying up as an organization. It kind of felt like that was a maturing stage. It was like, okay, now we've poached one from the big mainstream sports networks. We are kind of playing at a different level now. Is that internally, I imagine it felt slightly different, but to like as an outside observer, it felt like, okay, this is a big move. What was the process leading up to that like? And how did you think about it strategically? So yeah, KVV is a friend first, and he's been a friend for a long time to all of us. And you know what? An early supporter, like the golf media thing, especially with the PJ Tour can be very clicky. So you walk in the media center, especially three, four, five years ago, you felt like a fish out of water. And KVV was always the first guy to be like, hey, Come sit over here. Whereas I can't say that about a lot of the other, I guess, journalists, if you want to call it that. So we've always appreciated that. And I think KVV is one of the best writers, sports writers out there. And he was looking to make a change. So we've been talking to him about it for a long time. So it wasn't just like a, hey, yeah, come on board. Very much mapped it out for at least six to nine months with him involved. I probably didn't realize how big of a story it would be like, yeah, KVV where it's for ESPN, but like it made the news. And I was like, wow, this is a bigger deal than, than I anticipated. I think the strategy of it is in some ways we're zigging while others are zagging. There could be an argument of like, well, you guys should, you know, when you go read Reddit or whatever, you, they should have hired some younger guys. They should go all in on YouTube. And, you know, it's like, well, again, I don't know if we're going to win that mass appeal game. And I think if we think about avid golfers, and especially as we age, we can't pretend to be the young, cool kids forever. So again, let's be experts in like how we feel and like what we like. And we all feel like there is a lot of value in, even if nobody reads anymore, I read. And having a Sunday night gamer on the Masters written by Kevin Van Volkenberg, that is good content. I will read and I hope a lot of people will read. And making room for him, especially right now, just like, hey, get your feet wet. Let's write every week, whatever you want. You have the freedom to kind of chase topics. And here's what we're going to need from you during big weeks. And then I think long term, it's like there's a lot of value in complimentary written work, especially travel guides. And I think long form features that we can turn into podcasts, which again, takes some pressure off of like the interview pods. Like, hey, we don't have an interview. Let's run that three part pod. KVV wrote 10,000 words. Let's turn that into a three-part podcast. There's probably a business opportunity there. It helps create inventory. So, you know, that kind of stuff is on the roadmap. I also think if you look at our business, a, I don't want to say a weakness, but a concern sometimes is our biggest platforms, we don't own them. YouTube, Twitter, you're seeing it now with all the changes they're making. What if they go out of business? We don't own that megaphone. And I think the website is the one that we can own. And I think we can tweak it to be that top of the funnel to get more people. Hey, if you like this article, get on our email list. If you like, consider our spring collection of merch, stuff like that, I think is a long-term play. That doesn't happen overnight. And the goal of the website is not to just capitalize on people, but it is the one environment that we own. And I think that 
investing in that is a good long-term idea, but we needed somebody to be like writing is hard and it's time consuming. So investing in someone like KV to be our editorial director and lead writer, I think will benefit us maybe not as much this year, but in the next two to five years. Yeah. Well, when I saw the news, I thought two things and you can kind of either bat them away or say, yeah, that sounds about right. One is distributing podcasts is really hard. YouTube makes videos slightly easier, but the written word is the easiest thing to share. If you send it in a newsletter or an article or a URL link, it's really easy to put in a WhatsApp group and an email or whatever, send it to your friends and say, hey, read this. Really hard to do that with the podcast for various reasons because people listen on different places and all that kind of stuff. So I thought like one, from a distribution perspective, really interesting. And two, it helps, like you said, bring people to the website, which then helps with connective tissue between the rest of your business. Because when you're on your website, you can then say the story of, yeah, we've got a podcast over here, but if you don't want to listen to that, then you can watch our videos here. If you don't want to do that, or if you'd love both of those things, and you can come into our community via the Nest, or if you really want a hat, you can go to our pro shop and buy something there. So it kind of like really helps tell the story, which is quite difficult when you're in all these separate mediums across the media world. Yes, it could become the central platform, which I think is really important. Back to the earlier part of the conversation, podcasts are recaps. They have a shelf life. Yeah, we have that big, long OWGR world ranking discussion in in November. Well, it's hard to direct someone back to that podcast, whereas there's a lot more sustainability and like, well, let's put out a piece on like, here's how we feel about the distance stuff. And if somebody online is like, how do you guys feel about the distance stuff? Oh, go listen to episode 550. It's like, no, here's a link to the piece. Year over year, I think there's a compounding effect on that. You can revisit written work a lot easier than you can a podcast. I think that's part of us evolving and keeping sustainability top of mind. In some ways, this is the hard way to do it. I really believe that. It's like the writing stuff is hard and it takes a long time. That's, I guess, how you could get rich slow. (laughs) It's back to that quote that I am citing too much. That might be their title for this episode. The final piece, I think, of the final that we talked about earlier is the pro shop. And you are famously the merch czar. Can you take us through kind of the story of the pro shop? I think I'm guessing at the early days, it was you selling out of your bedroom. And now I imagine it has to look slightly different. So like kind of put some details around that for us. Yeah, the shop is great. I mean, it was the only source of revenue for three or four years. You know, it paid the hosting bills. And back in 2014, it was basically, hey, let's buy it. We made 100 t-shirts. We sold 100 t-shirts. We bought another 100. Then we bought 200. And there were a couple of times I was off work after that one company failed. And I put a lot of work over three months in between jobs. I'm so happy I had NLU. It always felt like a worthy project for me. Hey, let's learn how Shopify works. Let's try this. Let's try that. It was just a big experiment. And I think it was also really the one when we were just on Twitter and it was a small podcast or we were just writing previews on the website. Merch is tangible. And it was a great way to like, hey, bring home a bunch of shirts for my family during Thanksgiving. Or I'd go out to the bar and I'd give my buddies shirts. And then it gets them kind of like, dude, that's cool. You're doing this golf thing. It creates a community of like people around you. And that goes to like what it's always been, like that marketing that we make money on. I say this a lot. I say it to my brother and to Casey, who we, the three of us kind of run all the merch stuff. We are not an apparel company. We're never going to win there. I'm not going to be bidding on keywords for golf shirt against Adidas and Dick's Sporting Goods. Like That's just not why someone should buy our stuff. And so this year, we've really put a lot of emphasis and I think it'll start to show more and more this summer of like, how can the merch... Now the revenue is probably split like 
as of last year, like 50% sponsorship, 40% merch, let's say 10% community, which is like Nest memberships. We've got a real estate thing, you know, stuff like that. Merch will grow, but like the effort to grow it probably isn't the best use of time. And so it's like, how can the merch serve the other parts of the business? And a good example of that would be we're working with Titleist and FootJoy. Let's do some custom limited edition Titleist hats with our logo on them. Those will be available to Nest members. Great. That's perfect. We've got all these roosts. A big pain point, as I know, for a community or a roost, people want to make merch for their roost, but it's hard. You got to go work with some sourcing company or you're not going to get good pricing. How can we solve that problem for roost members? Okay, we're going to work with Holderness and Born. They're going to help us with drop shipping and embroidery. Merch is very tedious. And that's what people don't understand. When I was doing it out of my bedroom, I'm shipping out of my bedroom. That sucks. Going to the post office. Okay, I got to solve that problem. It's just one giant problem solving operation. Let's get a warehouse. Got to research third party for fillers. There's pros and cons to this one. Okay, now we have a warehouse. I got to do 100 orders a month to break even. Okay, that's the target. Let's do that. And so it just kind of evolves. Returns and exchanges are a massive headache. What are the options for that? Okay, let's plug in Returnly. So you kind of just start to solve problems over and over. And I mean, I can't say enough about Casey on our team. She has a background in merchandising and she has come on board and really helped us because we can only implement this strategy of merch supporting and being an asset to other business initiatives because of her. When it was my brother and I, the problem is that the big orders, the stuff that you do overseas or make yourself, those are just as hard as the small orders. And so it's like, oh man, I'd, I'd rather just do a big order. But the problem with that is you get stuck with a bunch of inventory you might not need. It can be hard to keep selling the same product. And it's a lot easier for us to promote like, hey, we got this new collection. We've got this master's drop. We've got this limited edition FootJoy collaboration. That fits our business model a lot better than, hey, let's go do the scale thing and buy a gabillion polos. Okay, then we'll just run a bunch of Instagram ads. It's not that easy anymore. You really got to be creative. And if the concept of the merch is you're buying this because you like our content, then we need the merch to reflect the content. We need to come out. We need to be ahead of the game coming out with a strap collection when the next strap season drops. That is difficult to keep up with because we're putting so much content out there. So we're starting to catch up and we're working ahead, but that's kind of the evolution of the merch stuff. It went from just like make merch and sell it to like much more like, okay, how does this work with the rest of the business? And even if there's no growth to it, it's a great source of cash flow for us, which is very reassuring. It's coming in daily, whereas a lot of our sponsorship deals are annual deals. So things can get a little stressful at the end of the year. I think it's a really good balance to have those two sources of revenue. And I think we're heading in the right direction with diversification stuff. What have you learned about making money on merch? Because it seems to be like a lot of people do it from a marketing perspective and accept that they're probably going to lose money on it. You've talked about working with partners and then obviously there's a shipping cost and various other things that get involved. Just keep squeezing your margin lower and lower. At the end of the day, it's like, now we've got to sell volume. What have you learned about doing merch well and profitably for the business? Make good stuff. Don't take shortcuts. Don't get out over your skis. It is good to be sold out and you'll be criticized for it. It is a good thing. You should be sold out on high-end stuff. Don't overcommit on inventory just to get a price break per unit. Made that mistake and it's never been out of the ordinary. 
And then pick some spots where you can go big and you can save some unit cost money, things that one size fits all stuff, stuff you're known for. Golf towels would be a good example for us. And you can use those across the business. You can use them for giveaways. You can use them for events, stuff that has multiple purposes or multiple value. I think what I've learned is that merch, whether you like it or not, it's like hand-to-hand combat. Again, back to Casey, like you got to be going over the shipping reports. Hey, did you guys overcharge us on the pick fees this month? Okay, cool. We need a credit for that. You got to go get it. No one's just going to volunteer like, hey, we messed up, man. We shipped everything FedEx and it cost you an extra nine bucks in order this month. You're going to have to refund us for that. And it's just being on top of that stuff. So merch stuff is not a glorious business. It can be a lot of fun to see what a thrill it is for me to see NLU gear at tournaments on TV. And I love the stuff that we make, but there's just a lot of grunt work that goes along with it. But there's a lot of learning from that. I've done all the grunt work, all of it. Don't make the same mistake twice. If you start to see like, oh man, I feel like our fulfillment costs are too high. Well, then you got to start like figuring out how to analyze it. Set up a routine of like monthly, you're going to go over this stuff. If someone on your team can review it or if you can review it, you got to be diligent about it. It fills me with dread whenever I think about merch. The best thing about it is it's tangible and people love to buy the stuff, particularly if you have an affiliation with the brand that you're trying to buy from. It's fun. It's fun to give family and friends to see them wearing your stuff. Whether you like it or not, like the merch, the apparel stuff creates community in a big way. I think it's incumbent upon the operation producing the merch to like be thoughtful about what you're doing. It kind of goes back to like grow sustainably. Merch is probably the part of the business where you can really get out over your skis. You can be stupid. A good example of that is like just because a polo sold out really quickly doesn't mean you should order double. Maybe everybody that wanted it bought it. And so it's like, oh man, I didn't think about that. Now you're like, oh, you can't just remake the same thing. You got to continue to like be thoughtful about it. So that takes effort and it can be a time suck. That's where like setting sustainable metrics is good. And for us, it's like end of the day, if we're not losing money and we're far from that, like on merch, then everything's fine. But it almost reassures me to think about it that way. That would be really bad if we were breaking even on merch, but like that's a good way to think about it. The other thing I would mention is price things right the first time. Don't gouge people. Do promotions and sales. Be very judicious about that. We really do. We try to price things right. We've had to up some of our prices with inflation and with the way the world is. For the most part, it's like we target this margin and we're going to raise the price if we have to. There's some stuff we could raise the price. It sells out in a day. There's an argument like you should raise the price on it. It's like, no, I don't think we should. I want people to feel like they're getting a good product at a fair price. I think that has a long-term value, especially with Nest members. And yes, Nest members, you get a 15% off discount on everything. When you do the analysis, the lifetime value of a Nest member versus a non-Nest member is like 4X. If you're thinking long-term, that pays off. Treat your customer well. The partnership side, I think you deal with that stuff. You had a long-term partnership with Callaway. Now you're with Titleist and there are a number of other brands that you work with. How do you structure those partnerships? Do they come about by you going to them or is it mostly inbound at this stage? What are the non-negotiables? We've already talked about one, which is we're going to say what we want to say. We're not going to be held hostage by your corporate views or your house views. Are there any other things when you're going into those discussions that are like non-negotiable from your side? Yeah, the partnership stuff's evolved over time. It went from like, like I said earlier, hey, we got cameras, like where do you want us to go? To 
I think it's a better fit for everyone. If like, we want to make this show and we want you to be associated with it. It's not going to be a car commercial. It's not going to be a rangefinder commercial. We will use the products and we want you to get value out of it. And we have a lot of ways that we think we can do that, but we're going to be in control of what it looks like. And so you have to be selective. We've said no to a lot of people. I think on the video side, the partnership stuff is a lot more nuanced. The podcast stuff, I would struggle to think of any sponsors that we have that we don't use personally. There's times when we probably have done it, but we don't do the marketplace ads on Spotify. There's a lot of companies that hey, we, yeah, we just don't want to do that. I just don't think that's going to work. If it's a long-term partner, we try to, I don't want to say always be exclusive, but be conscious of like, well, if you're working with this person, you probably don't want to work with their competitor. One thing I'm really proud of is I don't think there's really a partner that has ever stopped working with us because of us. Now, having a tough time with the business or there's never really been a big fallout with anybody. We've changed. So you mentioned Callaway to Titleist, but that had a lot more to do with us evolving as a business and the opportunity to sign on over a multi-year period, which gives us as a small business, a lot of security. The other thing you can get sucked into, and again, you just learn, you kind of get incrementally better at creating proposals and putting together deals that work. A big priority this year is don't get sucked into the volume discount game. We've had a lot of issues with being sold out on podcast inventory because we said yes to a massive deal at the beginning of the year. You kind of need that, but like you don't want to go too heavy that way because you want to provide an opportunity to get who could be good sponsors involved midway through the year as they show up, basically. So that's a factor. The other factor is Randy and I have been putting a lot of time into budgets, like PL stuff, the no fun part of running a business. Trips are expensive, the travel, okay, these film room projects. What is our average cost for these? And yeah, there's going to be some outliers. And there's going to be some ones that are very efficient. Where do we kind of net? Where can we like model out a film room trip costs us X? And then how do I layer on top of Ben's time editing and our freelance editors? Because this stuff is like, it takes a lot of energy and resources to make. Some partners don't understand that. So that gives me a lot of confidence when I go to someone, I say, this is the price of a season of film room. Well, that number looks high. Well, here's why. I'm not making this up. I'm being very diligent about that. In the past, it was very easy to say like, oh yeah, we'll throw in five videos and we'll throw in 40 podcast reads and an event sponsorship. And all of a sudden you're like, dang, all of those took five trips. And you think there's efficiency in that, but secretly, sometimes there's not. You got to watch the holes in the bucket a little bit. And so for me, that's been a massive priority the first three months of the year. And I think we're doing better than we ever have. And then the other piece of it is, and again, this is not sexy, but it's just account management. It's being proactive. Hey, here's the update. I'm a big shared notes guy. It's been really successful with our partners. Like, hey, here's a Google doc that has shared notes. Before any call we have, these will be updated. Please put your notes in here as well. I can't stand the 65 back and forth emails. Can't find anything. So if you're going to email me, link the notes, put the notes in there. I'll go look at the notes and then we'll share our screen. When we talk, we'll just go down the list and starting to implement a process of like, hey, if we're doing a film room, because it's going to be a different crew going on each trip, in order to do one, you have to have a pre-production plan and a pre-production meeting. 
non-negotiable. What's the concept? Where are we going? What are we spending? Who's it for? Why are we doing that? All that needs to be answered up front. You know, there's like a kind of a template of like these six check marks. And then from there, that then it makes it a lot easier to go to a client once we've figured out what we're doing. You don't realize it's like sometimes like, oh yeah, come to our event and like do some social stuff. Well, that's not going to be very good. No one's going to be happy with that. And my concept of social stuff is probably different than Ben's concept and Tron's concept. So us being on the same page about like, these are the deliverables sounds really like lame and boring, but it goes back to the podcast agenda thing. It's just about organization and communication. The more you outline it, then you can like play in the sandbox and get creative because all the foundational stuff is very clear and everyone's on the same page. Yeah. Constraints will never cease to amaze me how like how effective they are because you know, everyone's on the same page, as you say, and you can kind of work from there. Is there anything else from the business side that we haven't covered that you would point people to as either being unexpected or just things that you think about a lot that probably people wouldn't think about too much? The only thing I'd reiterate is just the internal team communication. It's very subtle. I joke about it with my partner. It's like, you're never going to solve it, the interpersonal stuff. It's a forever war of like getting along, respecting each other. But I think the ability for us to have tough, direct conversations as a group or one-on-one has been the best thing for us. When things get bigger, things can get weird. And if you just identify it, the earlier you do and be very clear about things, it's super simple, but it's not easy. And it can be uncomfortable, but it's so important. Like It's like the only thing that matters. It's like, are you getting along? Are you having a good time? Are you not burned out? Like, (laughs) if those things are not in line, nothing else matters. Are there any tools you found to be effective to like open those conversations up or get people in a place that they're happy to do that? The other piece I'd note is that you were all in person doing this, and now it seems like you're distributed across the country. A couple things I recommend. One is I mentioned earlier notes. Having a record of things really makes a difference. We're partners it can be very difficult to hold a partner accountable versus a employee or somebody that, you know, a freelance, the dynamic is very clear here. I need you to do this. Whereas with partners, it's a little bit more like, Hey, like we were talking about earlier, I want to go on this trip. Okay. Well, if you want to go on that trip, you need to outline to me why you should go. What's the point basically. And if somebody doesn't do that, you need the opportunity to hold them accountable and kind of the forum for that. So there's no replacement for notes. There's no replacement for consistency with meetings. I hate having meetings to have meetings, but our weekly Monday meeting is non-negotiable. That's just tactical. Partner meetings is like usually every two to three weeks. And before we get off the phone, the last thing I do is, okay, let's, when's the next meeting? And you schedule it right there. So it's not like we tried it where it was like, oh, every Tuesday at this time, it's like, well, we're traveling a lot and people are doing stuff. It's like, okay, Let's just talk as a group right now. When should we meet next? Thursday at 11 a.m. Boom, done. Bump the same invite to that date. And it has a lot better effect because then you almost see everybody like right in the moment, accept, 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 accept. Instead of like the things that stay on the calendar, they're so much easier to be like, oh, I can't, eh, that's just that weekly meeting that I can skip that. This is like, no, we, it's like subconscious, but I bought into this meeting. An exercise that has really helped. My uncle is a, an executive coach. He's a man, Uncle Pete, married my wife and I. When we've had any type of interpersonal stuff in the past, things have been really calm the last year or so. And I think it's because of the work we put into it. But like 
people get on people's nerves, people butt heads. I called him to ask for some advice. How do you deal with this? And he gave me an exercise called seven good minutes, which I've utilized in several environments, both in a group and one-on-one. And the idea is that, okay, you start a watch, you start your timer on your phone, whatever it is, and you put it on the table. And for those seven minutes, all I could do, if you and I were doing it, it's like, Dom, I'm going to talk for seven minutes. And the only thing that you can do is ask me questions. Cannot interject. You cannot, I, I know, I, but that's not how it is. You know, I, yeah, I don't agree with that. No, you don't understand. Can't do that. Can't talk over the person. You have to sit there. It's my seven minutes. I can yell at you. I can say, this is how I feel about something. And then once that timer goes off, and it helps to have like a third person in the room, but you can do it one-on-one. One person has to kind of be like, this is how we're doing it. Once that timer goes off, we switch. You get your seven minutes. You can respond to what I said. You can do whatever you want. And I think that that time limit is perfect because it's usually long enough where if someone's really pissed off, they wear themselves out in about three or four minutes. They empty the chamber and they can't go any farther. And the other person is, they really want to talk, really want to talk. And then they settle into like, okay, I'm either going to let them dig his own grave. They start to understand like, oh, I can use these questions strategically, but it leads to progress. It prevents people from talking over each other and it forces people to talk. So it can be very good when there's someone in a group that's normally very quiet. It's like, I need you to fill up these seven minutes. That's the other thing. It's like, you kind of have to talk. And as a person doing it, if I don't have anything else to say, you can ask questions, but usually that seven minutes is the timer goes off and somebody wants to keep going. Can't keep going. Your turn. You come back at me. The three or four times I've done this, those seven minutes, yeah, they're whatever. But what it leads to is then a conversation afterwards in the next 30 minutes to an hour that's very productive of like, oh, you know what? I didn't know you felt that way. Or like, okay, I didn't realize we were that far apart on this. Or actually, you know what? Everybody just kind of calms down after that. It just clears things out. The clock and the how dumb and like, I don't know, like forced it feels at first is almost the point. You just force it to happen and you almost create, like you said earlier, like some structure and some focus to it. This will end in seven minutes. It's uncomfortable, but it's been very beneficial. I would say it's been beneficial with doing it with people that work for me. It's been beneficial in doing it with my partners. I would recommend it. Fascinating. Because it also builds the muscle of listening from the other side. It's like, okay, I need to tune in here. On They might say a number of things, but there'll be one or two in there that is really like the core of the issue here. And like, I need to focus on those things. I think a lot of arguments happen from like, they're not listening. And so it's like, no, no, no. Now they're listening. You can keep yelling, but you start to realize that one or two minutes in, this isn't effective. I sound like an idiot. So then that, you know, you kind of calm down and you realize sometimes people are just talking. (laughs) They're basically struggling with each other because they're like so similar. You know what I mean? It's like, well, you both are kind of like accusing the other one of doing the same thing. And I also think it's beneficial when there's no problem. It can be a great way to, as a leader, get feedback from somebody of like, hey, I want you to talk to me about how you feel about this. And as a leader, like, and the more you do it, the better you get at the question asking. I can probe for how do you feel about this? And when there's that power dynamic a little bit, sometimes people are like reluctant to share, but then uh, two or three minutes in, they almost forget and they start just unloading, like, I'm really struggling with this and that. And, you know, it's like, okay, well, I didn't know that. That's helpful information. You say like, oh yeah, bring 
bring anything to me with problems. It's like, no, you got to structure it so that they feel like it's, they actually can unload. Super interesting. And this it may be related or may not be related, but just thinking about kind of the growth of your business over the last decade or so, and it's become more apparent to me, particularly with the political situation in Gulf of rival leagues that we went over in the business breakdowns episode we did, that there may be some slightly more animosity to your business. It kind of felt like, you know, for a long time, it's just a group of friends and all your listeners felt like friends of the show. As the show has gotten bigger and the field that you're operating has become more political, that maybe people kind of throwing more stones than they ever did. How has that impacted you as a core team and kind of how you think about the business and really like, what are you trying to achieve here? We all went full-time on this at different points. Sally was first, my brother shortly after, and DJ and Randy, and then I was last. In a similar way, everybody for the first three to six months, doesn't matter who it was, spins their wheels. You go from the very structured environment of a real job to like, I can work on anything. I can do whatever I want. You get pulled in a million directions. And it takes about three months. And I've seen it with the people that we brought on board to find the rhythm and focus on what matters. And that's the natural evolution. I bring that up because I think it's the same with internet feedback. You read the comments and you're like, God, people are flaming me. You can take it real personal. And I've found that there's a couple things that have helped me. One, I have what I call a nuclear file. Nuclear, people make fun of me how I pronounce that word. Before I respond to anything, I have a massive note on my computer. If anybody wants to know where the dirt is, that's where it is. <laughs> and the nuclear file. <laughs> I write it out there. And most of the time, then I don't send it. Because it's almost like for me, I'm like, you know what? I could detonate you, but I'm not going to. It almost proves to you like, man, I just spent like 15 minutes writing something that I'm not even going to send. What a waste of my time. So the more you do that, the less you do it. And I think that's a very useful exercise. And I would say that the the comment stuff is like, there's some good stuff in there. Like, I think it's really helped me from a podcast standpoint. Early on, I did not prepare enough for podcasts. Now I make a point to really all week, if I'm going to be on the pod, I try to just take ongoing notes and then I try to refine them before we go live. And I think that's really helped me from just rambling and people can be very critical of using buzzwords and like, and um, and if you can get past the personal stuff, you can read into like, okay, you know what? That's fair. I could work on that. But then there's some people that just want to see the world burn. And it's like, you know what? I feel bad for those people and I'm not going to pay them any attention. And there's some people that are just going to disagree with you if you disagree on politics. We're not going to solve that problem. And I think the live stuff, it's like, again, I'm going to say what I think. That doesn't mean like, I'm not trying to tell somebody else they shouldn't like live golf. You're listening to this podcast because it's my opinion. You don't have to listen to it. And I think we've gotten some stuff wrong on that. I do think we acknowledge the nuance of it. And we discussed that, man, this is hard. This is not as simple as that. Like, I'll give you an example. One thing that I probably underestimated with the live stuff is how US centric pro golf is. And I'm in that bubble. I live in the US. The PGA Tour is the game in town. I've talked to some people that live in Australia. There are golf diehards in Australia. They have some of the best golf in the world. And you know what? The PGA Tour has screwed Australia over the past 20 to 25 years. The wraparound calendar, they do all their tournaments in the fall, like the Australian Masters and some of their big legacy events. And the PGA Tour basically just decided to start doing PGA Tour events in the fall. And like none of those guys want to fly down there. And I think that sucks. And I think that Live Golf, they're down in Australia this week. And I think that it's, you know what? If I was in Australia, I could see how 
the live stuff, it's like, well, yeah, you know, that sucks about it, but they are bringing some high level golf to Australia. And I want to see high level golf. If you take more of a worldwide perspective, I probably didn't appreciate that as much as I should have. I'm happy to put my hand up and say like, Hey, it's not all bad. Live isn't all bad. People want to be like, Oh, look, look at all the changes lives forced the PGA tour to make. Hell yeah. You're absolutely right. Now, do I want them to win? No. If we're talking about like who wins live or PGA tour, but like, yes, thank you for finally being the catalyst for some change. That's great. But none of it's all good or all bad. And I have just as many complaints about the PGA tour, which are well cataloged. So it's like people pick and choose where they want to flame you. If you disagree with them, I make a point. I try not to punch down and I don't want that to sound snobby, but like you clearly don't want to have a conversation about it. So I'm not going to like retweet and dunk on you. What's the point of that? I would say also, I try to do this with, and I'm doing air quotes, like competition. You know, a lot of other golf media stuff. It's like, I just try to like put blinders on in a lot of ways. I keep track of things. I try to make sure like, hey, platform updates. For the most part, it's like for the next three to six months, our strategy is pretty much laid out. Yeah, we could start thinking about changes for next year or in the fall, but like we are not big enough for me to worry about what somebody else is doing. That's not going to benefit anybody. We have too many balls in the air. Like all we can do is kind of control our operation. And if people start copying us or doing things that we're doing, great. You know what? We have a head start. We should keep a head start. And the only way to keep a head start is just to keep your head down and, and keep trucking. The minute you start worrying about like, hey man, like you guys copied us or you did that. It's like you're playing into their hand. That's stupid. Focus on what you can control. I've kept you for way too long but I've loved it. And, and I want to end on a high note, complete in contrast to what we just talked about there. You've done through the many years of the podcast and various other things you've done, you've kind of had this long conversation on just golf in general, whether that be the PGA Tour or other elements of it, how the broadcast can become more fan-friendly, et cetera. And a number of those, those things, whether they're directly or indirectly related to the stuff that you guys have put out there, I have to believe there's some effect of your podcast on like literally the game of golf and the way that coverage has changed over the years. A lot of what you've been saying for many years is kind of starting to come to fruition. Like, how proud are you of that stuff and like actually seeing this thing come to life? And how much involvement do you have these days with the key operators and stakeholders in the world of golf? We do have good relationships. You know, you try not to make that cloud your opinions or your criticism. We're kind of learning how to manage that in real time. I'm not going to pretend like that's easy. But I think, again, as long as you're like speaking, how you truly feel. And if you step over the line, you're quick to be like, Hey, I got that wrong. I think that people respect that. I would say I'm very proud of the, if you want to call it influence or impact we've had, but I'm also conscious of it's very easy for us to chuck it from the cheap seats and to say like, why don't you just fix slow play? It's if you take the time to have the conversations with people in charge, you realize it's not that easy. And you have that conversation. And a lot of times we still feel like you know what? I don't think you're trying hard enough, but you got to be careful that you don't hammer that until you at least get the other side of the things. The distance conversation is the same thing. You know, oh, ball goes too far. Well, you talk to Titleist and you talk to them and you realize like it is a little more complicated than you think. And understanding the other side of the argument or discussion, I think is really important. I would say that I am proud of the fact that we try to honestly be curious and learn first. And I take a lot of pride in trying to do things the right way. And I think that extends into like the conversation around golf. Don't just dig your heels in because 
you had this opinion and you're stubborn. It's like, no, you can change how you feel about stuff if new information arises. And I'm willing to take the heat for that of like, oh, look, you guys are coming around or well, yeah, fuck, who cares? So yeah, short answer, very proud. I feel like it's a um, a responsibility. I don't want to sound lame or high-minded, but like it's a responsibility. You get bigger. I think some people would probably criticize like, oh, you guys have changed. You don't chuck them from the cheap seats like you used to. It's like, well, listen, there's consequences to that. I will, if I truly feel it, I will. But like, that might not be our role. Maybe somebody else could do that. I still think we have a lot of good stuff, fun stuff to say, interesting stuff to say. And I hope we can help identify like some emerging voices. I think there's some operations out there. Like I'll give you an example. Like I think Bill Simmons, godfather of sports podcasting. I still listen to Simmons. I don't agree with him on a lot of stuff, but one thing I would give him a ton of credit for, he did such a good job over the last 10 to 15 years of identifying talent, giving young people a platform. They've all gone on to do, a lot of them from the ringer have gone on to do awesome stuff. And I think he still does that with the ringer. And I appreciate that about him. And I think it's good to see somebody, I think he's approaching 50. It's like, hey, listen, I'm not going to be the young guy, the sports guy forever. You kind of have to accept change as a reality. And so like, where do you fit into the landscape? Where can you offer value? Like it might not always be like my voice, but if there's other people that we think have good things to say, we should, we should listen. We should try to help them get it out there. Yeah. You got to evolve. You can't just get stuck where you were a few years ago. And you can't fake it. You can't pretend, you know, like our show strapped. We've had a lot of discussions about like, Hey, should we keep doing it? Well, yeah. Season by season, we'll see. But you also don't want to stay on stage too long with certain things. Maybe that series evolves into something different or how can you keep the magic, but not make sure it doesn't get tired. You know, you don't want to turn into like Brett Favre. Sometimes you got to retire from from that career and go to another one. And so much of this in our industry is like, what gives you energy? Because the listener, the viewer really feels that. If I feel like you're having fun, then I'll probably be having fun as well. And so you can't just keep doing something because you feel like people like it. It has to come from the heart. That's so true and so hard. Not hard, but it's so important for us. Every day, it's like, when's the next strap coming out? Why aren't you guys doing this? Why aren't you doing more of this? Because I don't want to self-combust. That's why. You got to understand it's not that easy. You got to pace the business. You got to pace yourself. And that's, I think, core to how we manage and run things. Yeah. To succeed, you first have to survive. Yes. Neil, this has been an absolute thrill. Thank you so much for joining us. I love everything you've been doing. And I've loved the journey that No Laying Up has been on. Very excited to see what comes next. Keep doing good work. A couple things. Yeah, of course. I got a couple of businesses I'd like you to hit on Business Breakdown. After saying that you don't like people telling you what, what, I know, what to do. These wear. are just suggestion <laughs> box at the end here. Instead of plugging my own content, I'm going <laughs> to plug your content. I'm a big Business Breakdown listener. You're a good man. A few I'd like you to check out. Bucky's. Yeah. Fascinating business. Would love to learn more about it. Jersey Mike's, another business, big fan of Jersey Mike's. The franchise model, I think you guys have done some franchise stuff in the past. Yeah, Orange Theory. But I think that's an OG QSR that would be very interesting. I think you did one on Chipotle too. Yeah, that was one of the early ones, yeah. I had another really good one, Goodwill. I have not heard of that one. That's exciting. Goodwill is a staple in American cities and towns across the US. And 
it is a business. It basically depends on, you know, people donating their old stuff. There's so many weird things with Goodwill. How do they throw things away? How do they manage that business? I'm fascinated by it. So unsolicited recommendations would listen to those three episodes. I love that. And I'm going to have to tap you up offline for who might potentially be good to do those. I have no idea. (laughs) That's not my job. (laughs) It's probably not me. So... (laughs) All right. Well, we'll um, also have to think about a master's breakdown maybe after a few discussions we've had in the last few weeks. Again, thank you so much for joining us, Neil. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yes. Thank you, Dom. 